Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Latter Day Takes, episode 100. I'll give you all a second to cheer me on. Okay, appreciate the applause. Thank you, everybody. Okay, so on today's episode, it's a long one. I brought back my mom. Uh, that's probably, those are probably the episodes that I get the best feedback on. So I thought, you know what, episode 100, let's bring her back. And it's a fun conversation. We talk a little bit about why I'm not married. We talk about um, some of her thoughts on the Daniel, because she's going to be talking on the Follow Him podcast uh, later this year for the third time, by the way. And we get into a little, lot of all sorts of other stuff. We talk a little bit of Julie Hanks. So get ready for that. And we have a fun time. It's a good conversation. It's a long conversation, but I think y'all will enjoy it. So I'm going to keep this intro kind of short. But before that, I get into kind of a recap. I don't really do a news segment this episode because I just wanted to talk about my experience doing a triathlon, which came out of nowhere. Yes, I did a triathlon, an Olympic triathlon last Saturday in Burley, Idaho. It's called the Spudman, and I had a really fun time. So I take some time, take you all through that journey. It's fun. Hope you enjoy that. And with that, we'll go ahead and start the show. Before we get to the rest of the episode, I want to share with everybody something special. So I have a protein bar that is amazing. It's the best protein bar I've ever had in my life. I'm not kidding. It's It's got prebiotics in it. It's called Odyssey. That is the protein bar company. The, the flavor I specifically like is banana, chocolate chip, peanut butter. It's a Utah-based company. It tastes delicious, and I'll tell you why specifically I like it. For one, there was another protein bar that I was eating a lot. Also tastes good. I don't want to mention its name because it's not about them. It's about Odyssey. Remember that, Odyssey Protein Bar. You can find them on odysseysnacks.com, or you can find them on Instagram as well, at odysseysnacks. Now, I'm telling you about this because, like I said, it's delicious, they have less calories than the other protein bar that I was uh, eating regularly. And also, they don't need to be refrigerated, so that's a bonus, like the other protein bar that I really like. But this one's better. No joke. It tastes better. It's got less calories. It's got 15 grams of protein. It's got prebiotics in there, like I had mentioned, and great macros overall. Two grams of added sugar. Fantastic. Four grams of fiber. You're dealing with just an overall awesome snack. You're feeling kind of a little bit of the munchies in that afternoon lull. It's perfect. It tastes amazing. I recommend all of this for everybody. And furthermore, here's the extra fun part for y'all. If you go to odysseysnacks.com slash harpy10, and that's H-A-R-P-E-Y-1-0, you can actually get 10% off on your order. So harpy10, you can enter that at the checkout as well. Get 10% off your entire order, and they'll hook you up with whatever flavors you want. They got a lot of different flavors on there, such as mint chocolate brownie, peanut butter chocolate chip, dark chocolate almond, banana chocolate chip peanut butter, and mocha chocolate crisp. The one I love, banana chocolate chip peanut butter, but I am looking forward to trying the rest of those because honestly, guys, it is amazing. You can find them on Odyssey Snacks on Instagram. You can go to odysseysnacks.com, make your order, type in the code harpy10, which is the same as my Instagram handle, H-A-R-P-E-Y, at harpy, right? Harpy10, Harpy10, and they'll give you 10% off your order. So check them out. Mormons are really nice people. Totally nice. They are the yes. best cult. Have you ever, under the influence of alcohol, questioned the teachings of the Mormon church? Well, these Mormons are so nice. Everybody's so nice. <laughs> Everybody's so nice in Utah. They're all Mormon, right? Yeah. So they're not most drinking. Of it, most of it. And they're like not cussing. They're like, Slovis, you stink. <laughs> 
I'm afraid it was the Mormons. Yes, the Mormons were the correct answer. Because God loves Mormons and he wants some more. Shout out to the Latter-day Saints. I want to start off this episode talking about something that I did on a whim last week. Now, this has been a year of whims for me, apparently. I hiked Mount Whitney, and I told you all about that, with about three weeks' notice. No specific training for Mount Whitney, but I've obviously been going to the gym regularly. Things like, I mean, not obviously. I don't want to make it sound like that. Sorry. But I've been going to the gym regularly. I've been in pretty good cardio shape. I've been keeping that up and going on other hikes and things like that. So I did that basically on a whim, especially for something like Mount Whitney. And then last Wednesday night, so a week ago, I was playing pickleball with some friends that were planning on doing a triathlon in Idaho, the Spud Man in Burley, Idaho. And they're like, you know what? There's a couple people not um, doing the Spud Man that we know, so you should take one of the registration because it was too late to register. It was all full and everything. And they're like, you should do it with us. Literally two days notice. And I was kind of thinking about it. I'm like, no, I mean, I don't have a wetsuit. I don't have a bike. And he's just, one of my buddies was like, I'm just going to use a mountain bike. And I'm like, oh, really? I have a mountain bike. And another friend there that wasn't going to do it with us had a couple wetsuits that we were able to borrow. This is an Olympic triathlon. This is a mile swim in a river, the Snake River. And it was downstream, so that helps quite a bit. Wetsuit keeps you fairly buoyant. So it's not very daunting. But granted, I would never swam more than like a hundred yards straight in my entire life. I don't even know if I've done that much. And so mile swim, 25 mile bike ride, which at the time they told me it was 20 mile bike ride. And I'll tell you more about that in a second. And then a six mile run. That's an Olympic triathlon. That is a standard triathlon. Never done anything like that before in my life. Never done a sprint, nothing ever like that. And so I'm sitting here thinking, I guess I could probably do that, right? I could at least finish. That's really the only goal that I should put out there. So I went for it. Got my mountain bike ready, borrowed the wetsuit, planned it all out in my mind, drove up there Friday night, camped out there right by the starting line with some friends, woke up the next morning, put on my wetsuit. You know, we had our bikes at the right spot, and then we went for it. And it was hard. That is one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, climbing Mount or hiking Mount Whitney still tops it because that was just battling the elements. That was a real mental game, but this was also very much a mental game. The mile swim was pretty tough. Took about 28 minutes for me. Felt okay about that. Got to the bike, changed, got out of my wetsuit, put on a shirt, put on shoes, got on my mountain bike. And my goodness, is that a huge mistake using a mountain bike for a triathlon? Not only that, I thought it was a 20 mile bike ride. It's actually 25. And that really sucked because my Apple watch was doing a great job keeping up with like where the mile markers were. Like I saw the five mile mark, my Apple watch said about five miles because I was keeping track of everything I wanted to see. And I get to mile 20 and I'm like, where the freak is the finish here? I get to 21 miles on my Apple watch and I'm like, is it going to be 25 miles? I get to 22 miles and I'm like, son of a bee. This thing is 25 miles. I was so mentally prepared for 20 miles. Even though I was going slow and getting passed by everybody and their freaking dog, which, I don't know, that's just a saying. Nobody, No dogs were there. Uh, I was feeling okay physically. I was like, my bike just won't go that fast. Whatever. Physically, I'm okay. Once I hit 20 miles, then saw that there, or realized there was going to be five more miles, I was like, this sucks. And I was mentally out of it at that point. I kind of had to check out because I was like, this is really, really hard, actually. Get to the landing spot ditch my bike, get, uh, I think all I did was, I 
took my shirt off and got a couple things and started running because I was like, I mean, there's just no point in waiting. So I went for the six miles and was really focusing on running a mile, walking a minute, running a mile, walking a minute. The most I walked at one point, I think, was around mile four. And I was like thinking, you know what, maybe I'll just take a quarter mile and walk that. That was about three to four minutes. And then got to mile five, took about another minute to walk and then finished it out. And it's technically 6.2, I believe. Uh, it's a 10K. So um, it was, it's a mind game. It is it, like, it is a mental battle. And it's just like, you know what? Just get to the next mile. Just get to the next mile. And no training for triathlon. So I feel pretty proud of myself. It was really, really hard. I'm glad I did it. Probably won't do it again. It's a lot like how I feel about Mount Whitney. But I'm glad I did it. Like, it's something I accomplished. It was a real physical battle. And um, I don't regret doing it. So anyway, wanted to share that. Uh, and I think something that I thought about a lot is that we talk about kind of finding joy in the journey. You know, you see that all the time because they're like, once you hit your destination, you actually don't feel as happy as you think you might. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. When I was done with this triathlon, I was beat. I was like, this hurts. I'm in pain. I was like really sore. I mean, I was okay. Um, and I was walking. I was fine. But another thing too, that's interesting. I actually didn't eat anything. I, uh, I was completely fasted. That's, I'm used to doing that. I don't really eat till like early afternoon, usually on a daily basis. That's just kind of my routine. I do the intermittent fasting thing and I really like it. So I work out a lot in a fasted state, but I've never done a triathlon in a fasted state. Burned about 3000 calories in that triathlon. And then the first thing I had, and this is terrible, was a, uh, they had chocolate milk at the finish line. So I downed two things of chocolate milk and my stomach was not feeling great. And I was like, I probably need real food in me. We went and got real food and I was feeling a lot better after that. My body was feeling better. I was feeling pretty replenished after that. So that's a little side note, but how do you find joy in the journey? And I did kind of have to adopt that mentality during the triathlon where I was like, Hey, the weather's beautiful. It was a beautiful morning, like riding the bike as crappy as it was on a mountain bike. It was absolutely gorgeous that morning in Burley, Idaho. Burley's a kind of a beautiful town. I really, really liked it. I kind of fell in love with Burley, Idaho. And even running, you're like, I don't run often, but you know what? Let's do this. And just went for it. And I, hey, I'm ha happy and healthy. My knees killed, but you know what? I was able to run and I ran okay. I, I, I was okay with my pacing, you know, and, and I was trying to focus on all those things. And looking back at it, I'm really happy I did it and everything. But that is an interesting concept. How do you find joy in the journey? That's not easy to do. And one thing that I realized when I got back from Lake Powell a couple weeks ago, I was actually like kind of in this weird depressive state where I was just like, it's over. Like what I'd been looking forward to all summer, like I took the entire week off for work and I had really like done a lot of prep work beforehand, getting some other people trained around me so I could take a work a week of work off without having to worry about anything. And once it was over, I'm like, well, this stinks, you know? And it's like, yeah, that makes sense. And I should have just enjoyed working up to Powell and being in Powell and then coming back. But it's an interesting concept. I don't know. I don't really have much more to say than that. I just feel like it's something that a lot of us think about. And so whatever it is that our goals are right now, yeah, that's great. It's good to remind yourself of what your goals are, your lifelong, long-term goals. But really what we should enjoy is the everyday process that we work towards achieving those goals right now. Cherish these moments. Now, that's what I'm just being told, so I'm just relaying that to you all because that's not something I've mastered. 
but I will try. And if I figure something out more along those lines, I will absolutely share it. If anybody else has anything to say about that, please give me the feedback that I'm looking for. But um, anyway, just wanted to share that. Uh, I hope this is on the shorter side. I mean, it's a long one. It's a long one today. So hope you all enjoy it. Gear up. It's a great conversation between my, me and my mom. We get into all sorts of things. So enjoy that, and we'll catch you all on the other side. Okay, joining me on the podcast today, episode 100 for Latter-day Takes, technically. I mean, since it rebranded, right? It's still going to be 100. Uh, is my mother, Dr. Lily Anderson, once again, recurring guest. This is a third time, I think, for you, right, Mom? Third time. Beautiful. Well. And congratulations. On yeah, thank episode. you. I, well, I mean, it just made sense because your episodes with me have been some of the more popular ones. So go figure. Which yeah. is not unprecedented with your guest appearances on podcasts. From what I understand, you do very well on the Follow Him podcast as well, which you've got a third one coming up later in the year, right? Yes, it should be early October, I think. And it's on Daniel. Daniel, okay. Any any little uh, teasers you want to give us for that one that you're going to share? Well, I've been thinking a lot about Daniel, and there's a ton of uh, kind of exciting prophecy that Daniel gets into. And that's not my particular area of expertise, but um, I've been reading up on it a little bit. But the the big focus that I have kind of been drawn to is the fact that, um, you know, we are admonished to create Zion in the midst of Babylon. That's a clear invitation for the members of the church, is to build Zion even in the midst of Babylon. And Daniel was in literal Babylon. <laughs> you know, the, Nebuchadnezzar was a Babylonian and had taken some of these young Jews captive into Babylon. So they lived Zion lives. He and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are terrific examples of living a Zion life in the midst of Babylon, not succumbing to the pressures or the um, temptations and the examples that were around them of pagan worship and all kinds of... Uh, misdeeds. So it's impressive. And I, and I wanted to talk about that, maintaining our standards in the midst of, of a Babylon that we're in, in yeah. the world and how to help our children um, try to prepare for that, which, you know, there's some things we can do and there's some things that they have to decide. So um, it's not about blaming ourselves when mistakes are made, but it is about, you know, what can we do to try to strengthen ourselves, all of us to to create Zion in the midst of Babylon. So I know the second episode you did was on Joseph. What Remind me what the first one was for Follow Him. For do, 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 those that are listening, just kind of a reference point. Section 50, done? the DNC. Because that was Which last is, year. A, yes, and that's a great section. That's the first one I did on Follow Him. And um, it, it's, I love Section 50. I love the whole DNC, but Section 50 is a marvelous section about um, in my opinion, you know, there's there's a real message there about thinking and using reason and not letting emotion get in the way. And that's really hard for people to do in a world that keeps telling us to follow our hearts and where our own appetites and desires and passions and whims and impulses can really get in the way of doing things in a more successful way, um, living life more successfully. So I talk a lot about that in terms of revelation, you know, light, truth, and intelligence are all the same thing. And there's a wonderful scripture 
in section 50 about he that receiveth light and continueth in God, meaning living according to the light, receiveth more light, and that light and light grow, groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. Anyway, it's there's there are a lot of great messages in section 50, but I think one of the biggest ones is that business of, of thinking. God wants us to think and to make decisions rationally, not impulsively, and not um, yielding to the drive of our emotions. Which, which doesn't ignore emotion, but that we don't let it drive the bus. I remember you telling us that, you know, since since I was young, you know, you've used that example with clients, you've shared that same sentiment with us. And I've applied, I applied that to one example in the scriptures that I appreciated a lot as I had gone through it because it was, I was, I was at crossroads in my own life when I was living in Texas, as you remember, um, deciding whether or not I wanted to come back to Utah because I got a, a job offer out here. And I also had an opportunity out at Texas Tech to continue teaching. I don't know if you remember that, but thought, yeah. you know, what is it, right? And the opportunity out here was more lucrative, not just financially, but also socially and prospects and things like that. Um, but I remember reading in, I was reading in the Book of Mormon right around that time at the beginning of Ether with the brother Jared conversing with the Lord. And he specifically asks the Lord, how are we going to have light in the barges? And the thing that dawned on me in a way that it hadn't before was that the next question, I don't know if you remember, is the Lord just turning it back on him. He's like, what would you have me do to give you light in the barges? Which is kind of right along the same lines of what you're talking about. It's like the Lord doesn't want to just tell us what to do. He wants us to come to him and say, I have this idea. This is what I think is right. And he'll let us know if we're wrong a lot of the time. And in this sense, the brother of Jared said, well, we could probably get some rocks, you know, we know how to, maybe we're, maybe they were familiar with working with rocks, heating them up, all that stuff. I've shared this idea with you before. And maybe if the finger of the Lord can touch this, it'll stay lit for as long as we need it and give us the light that we need to get across the ocean to wherever our destination may be. And it was that moment that dawned on me, which is you make your decision and go, go take your decision to the Lord. And if you feel like it's right, then keep moving forward. If not, he'll let you know. Mm-hmm. So, and that and was a lot, a large part due to what you had told me, by the way, growing up. Well, that's nice. That's really nice that that clicked together in that other great example, because it is a great example. And I think it's really true that the Lord doesn't want us to be mentally flaccid. You know, I mean, he gave us this amazing organ, you know, <laughs> with the prefrontal cortex that he wants us to used to increase in light, truth, and intelligence. And it doesn't increase or become more powerful if we don't use it. We do need to make our pro and con lists. We need to look at the relevant data. We don't have all the data. God has all the data, which is why we do that prayerfully, so that he can bring things to our mind and, and help us. And yes, redirect us if we end up with a conclusion that is lacking because we didn't have future data, for instance, because we don't know the future and God does. But but I think it's, it is this huge point that he wants us to think. He wants us to reason. And he wants us to use the principles that he's already revealed to us. Because um, why should he have to repeat himself a million times? And sometimes people are asking questions about things they have no business asking questions about. Because God has revealed his opinion on these subjects before. And, and it, I think that's a really important idea. Because there, um, even, and I don't have a reference on this. I should, but I don't, I don't. I think it was Boyd, no, I think it was McConkie 
who in a speech many, many years ago said that before they petition the Lord for new revelation, the 12 uh, do as exhaustive a search as possible to see if the Lord has previously revealed his thoughts on that subject. And I thought that was really, really a wonderful reminder that, you know, why should the Lord repeat us, repeat himself all the time? You know, are we not doing our diligence? He says to ask, seek, knock. There's so much revealed information. And then we're going to go to God and say, like, gee, should I smoke or not? You know, gee, should I, you know, start drinking or not? Gee, should I, should I have companions that are not worthy? Should I have... Anyway, all that kind of stuff, it's kind of like, no, I, I'm pretty sure he's told us about these things before. Why are we asking him? Well, it's kind of funny because in Third Nephi, which is what I've been reading the most recently in my own study, is that when Christ comes down, what is it that they write about what he says? Everything that had been in the scriptures already. <laughs> like, right. like they're, right. they're repeating stuff out of the New Testament, the Old Testament, like it's Isaiah, well, it's Matthew. It's They didn't have the New Testament, remember? I know, but I'm saying he's repeating it's the yes. same thing he's shared it's with other people, thing. which is essentially scripture. Thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he does. In fact, he quotes Isaiah. Christ quoted Isaiah more than any any other yeah. reference in his own ministry on earth. So, yeah, he quoted scripture. himself. So you're like, yeah, have we been reading this? Have we yeah. been taking it in? Because it's pretty much available if we pay attention and and search diligently. And, and I, that's a good exercise for that prefrontal cortex, too, is to search, you know, to, to prayerfully and thoughtfully consider what is available. And then there really doesn't need to be a lot more revelation. Now, in our individual lives, obviously, we need guidance and there are big decisions to make, like, yeah, what job do I take? What do I, you know, lots of big decisions that God certainly wants to be involved in if we'll invite him in. And he can stop us if we're going the wrong way, not out of rebellion, but because, you know, we just don't have all the data and he does. So that's that's comforting and wonderful. But a lot of times it's, in fact, I would say the vast majority of times we have the answers. Many times in my own life, I've gotten answers that have come to me that were in the words of a hymn mm. or scriptures that I knew and had memorized or was familiar enough with them that they came to mind at times when I was praying or needing them. And I thought, you know, it's true. The answers, we have the answers in, in most cases. Um, occasionally, you know, God God does need to help us with something that we can't possibly have all the information about. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right. Well, going back to Daniel, that's what you'll be talking on this next and, and follow him. You said October. Is that right? Yes. October. I should know the date, but I don't. We're recording it in early September, so oh, I nice. have to get ready. But um, they're, they're ahead, which is nice on their oh, podcast. Oh, yeah. That would be nice. Um, actually, I wasn't planning on asking this, but... You knew I had kind of a one-sided rivalry with Hank Smith, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm curious to get your thoughts on that because you've corresponded with him a few times now at least and obviously have had interactions with him that have been very positive. Well, I mean, he, he is the host. So, <laughs> and then we have, you know, the correspondence really has been only about setting up the logistics of those things and so on and you know, asking or giving me choices about, you know, what sections or what parts I would like to do, which I appreciate that I've had some some input on those, uh, depending on what's available. There wasn't too much left available for this year, but uh, there were still a few selections and I chose Daniel. At any rate, what um, I'm, I'm trying to look ahead here and find out when that is just because I should know. But um, he's a really nice guy, as you're well aware. And um, he's always been... <laughs> He's always been very friendly and um, and easy to work with. 
Um, I understand what your concerns are, and I think that... Uh, I'm not even know, sure I... I'd call them concerns, for the record. Okay, what would you call them? I mean, maybe concerns, I guess. I mean, it's funny, because, ironically, uh, he blocked me on Twitter, and then uh, one, uh, a guest that he's had the most on the Follow Him podcast, I believe, is my own mother. <laughs> there's, there's, there's... <laughs> Irony everywhere. But actually, I don't think I'm the most uh, frequent visitor. I, I don't hear it all the time myself, but um, I know Tony Sweat, who's a, and most of them are religion professors at BYU. Mm. And I, I think he's been on there quite a few times. Oh, okay. So I could be wrong on I, that, but... But I, it, I'm glad to be a, a repeat uh, guest. Yes, at least. Sure. Oh, um, it's uh, October 31st, the week of October 31st to November 6th is Daniel. So going back to Daniel, as you had said, that'll be coming out the week of October 31st to November 6th, right before then, really. Um, I was curious, was Daniel married? From what I have read, I think Daniel was a eunuch. Is that right? I was not expecting that answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, there- there's some indication of that. Now, obviously, these are sketchy records, and we don't have all the information. So there are a lot of suppositions that may prove to be you know, mistaken. But this is one that has been made by Bible scholars in and out of the church. Um, don't talk about it a lot, but um, it was very common when young men were brought into the court to castrate them. And then they could be all around, you know, the wives or whatever. And that was that was very common. But he apparently was never assigned to any kind of harem or anything. But um, one of the indications, well, besides the fact that this was a common practice, was the fact that in artwork, Daniel never appears with a beard. Not only is a, a wife never mentioned or, or children ever are never mentioned either, but he never appears with a beard even though he had a very long ministry there, lived until he was old, um, probably in his 90s. It's, it's considered that he lived at least that long. And, um, but even in the lion's den, which happened later in his life when he was old, uh, he doesn't have a beard in any of those depictions. So they see that as one of the indications that, that it was known at some point that, that he was a eunuch. Wow. I would okay, like I said, that was not at all this was not a loaded question, at least not in that regard. Um however it may have been there's a loaded question else. in another regard. What's that? There's another there's another you know, warning that's given by some of the prophets prior to the fall of Jerusalem. And you know, the Babylonian captivity was immediately following the the first fall of Jerusalem in about five eighty six BC. And um Prior to that, the warnings of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and some of the last prophets uh, of the southern kingdom did say that you're, something about how your seed will be cut off from, you know, your sons will be without seed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll be taken captive and they'll be without seed. You know, there's some statements like that that I don't have memorized or ready to hand, but that indicate again that, you know, it's not impossible that this could have been the case. And also for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So it it may have not been likely that Daniel wasn't married, but it was likely that perhaps he was a eunuch. And because he was a eunuch, it's possible he wasn't married. Why do you think I'm not married? <laughs> not for that reason. Um, and well, that's I not a eunuch. Daniel, I mean, eunuchs didn't marry <laughs> in those days. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, why would they? Why would they? 
So um, marriage is about having children. I mean, it's, and I realize that it's not just that, but that's really the purpose. You know, that's, that's what marriage is for. Procreation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And while not everybody has that opportunity here through no fault of their own, perhaps, uh, when they marry and, and have fertility issues or, you know, situations where they can't have children. So nobody's condemned for that. But that's the point. That's why in the top level of the celestial kingdom, that's for people who are married because they will have eternal lives, meaning the ability to procreate forever. So that's, that's very specific to marriage. Nobody else will will have a body that can recreate. Okay, so let me re-ask that question. Why don't you think I'm married? <laughs> okay, different then. Um, gosh, <laughs> if I had the answer to that, Harper. <laughs> maybe you'd be married by now. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. You just don't I don't know. know. I mean, I certainly would share it if I if I thought, I, you know, there was something. I mean, I'm... I know that this is my podcast and I'm, I'm, ha I'm happy to see it come out swinging and not hold back at all. Well, I know that you intended to title this and maybe you have, um, you know, my mother berates me for not being married. And as I told you, that's not true. And you know it because I'm not going to, you know, that's just not my style. And I don't think it's helpful to beat up people for stuff like that ever. Why would it be helpful? That said, you know, that I would love you to be married. And I think that it's, more possible than it has seemed. <laughs> I think that you've maybe, I think there might be some things you've done to shoot yourself in the foot a little bit. And I think it's not uncommon these days. Um, There's no question about that. I, I, and I've admitted that too. I've been yeah. very open about that. So, I mean, some of those obvious things perhaps, but I, I do think that um, there is a lot of trouble with young people in general. Um, these days, certainly the average age of marriage has increased in the church, as it has outside the church, um, typically members of the church get married a little sooner than average, but it's not, it's not that different. You know, we're not really that different from the rest of the world, which is to our own everlasting shame, because we should be. Oh, no, and that, and that is growing. I know you used to make this joke, and by the way, I actually used this joke in a Sunday, or in an Elder's Quorum lesson that I taught. I didn't tell you about this. This brought the house down, or maybe I did, I can't remember, but your whole graph about you know, if we mm -hmm. are just mimicking the world, like just, just barely, like just better. a little bit better than the world, all that means is we're going to go to hell six months later. And as soon as I said that, there was like roaring laughter in the room, like roaring. It was like I said, it brought the house down. But um, and it because it's hilarious, but it's also true. I think that gap is actually getting smaller. By the way, I would agree. I would agree. I I did talk about this in a recent podcast of my own on choosing glory that. Um, I'm really saddened by the fact that you can't walk into, let's say, a school dance and quickly identify the Latter-day Saints. Yeah. Like, what's wrong with us? What's yeah. wrong with us? Well, what's How the come point of being what's in the church? The point? Yeah. Having the gospel covenant and, and the blessings of, of the priesthood in, the, in our church and sacred ordinances. and the, Anyway, what's the point? Exactly. We are selling our birthright for a mess of pottage if we blend in. Christ was so clear about that. What what good are you if your salt that has lost its savor? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out. That's I mean that's a pretty pretty stern statement. He's he's not pulling any punches there. But there's nothing. How could it be different from that? If we're no different, who are we? So it's it's tragic that that's true, and it's been true for in a lot of measurements across behavior. Right? 
for a long time, I've been aware that divorce rates in the church are no different from divorce rates outside the church. No, no again, different? I thought it was a no, little bit better. No different. So it's about 50% in the church, too? Yes, and those numbers, I mean, they're different I've actually ways heard to they're kind of skewed. Someone. I've heard that, if, for example, in one marriage, yeah. you can count two because if they ask the wife and the husband, uh, irrespective of each other, like... It counts as two divorces, but only one marriage. Like I've heard that statistics, the data can get a little murky that way. I have heard that. Right, right. But at any rate, we all know that it's really high. (laughs) The divorce rate is really high and much higher than it used to be. And it's really no different in the church. And it's not any different with temple marriages. Here's what does seem to make a measurable difference that is consistent over, over different groups and studies. And that is private devotion like personal and private devotion practices, meaning prayer, yeah, scripture reading. You know, certainly for us, having family home evening and scripture studying, going to church together is one that they talk about too, but praying as a, as a couple and, and reading scriptures together, those things across religions, across denominations. So Catholics who do that have lower rates of divorce. Baptists who do that have lower rates of divorce, and so do we. Interesting. So on that note, it's funny because... I remember a, a mission buddy have told me had told me this. We were talking about it one time, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this because uh, he was saying how in his family he was surprised that there were no inactive members. You know, as it, growing into a going into adulthood, and that's the same with us. You know, I mean, spoiler alert for those that are listening: eight kids in our family, so ten total people. Obviously, the two parents, um, me being the youngest, so we're all you know well into our adult lives. Every single one of us still has temple recommends from what I understand and are fully active in the church for whatever measurement uh, you made. Well, and I would say even more than that, even though I recognize that things can change at any time and I'm not trying to rest on any laurels here because complacency, complacency is a big enemy to progress. But I would say that you're all believers. You're not just active. You're believers. And that's that's precious to me. I'm incredibly grateful for it. This is something your dad and I don't take credit for, although I certainly hope that we contributed. You help facilitate it. There's no question about that. Yeah. Well, we tried to teach and, and not be hypocrites. Not that anybody's perfect, but we tried not to be gross hypocrites. And well, I'm not even trying to brag here, by the way, like it's, it's, it's not, no, I know it's just, it's just, it is a real blessing in in ways that it's not very there for the grace of God. Go I, right. Yes, but I, I'm really grateful for that. And I and I do think that, um, anyway, that it, it does, that, that that's pretty rare. I mean, we have a lot of people in the church who are still kind of iffy. You know, you run into people very easily. And, of course, I do as a counselor that are great people, but they're, they're doubters. You know, they, yeah. um, I know a young woman, well, she's a young mother, and she's great. She, I love her. She's active, um, serves you know, has a temple recommend, always has, but she's, but she gets upset at things that happen at church. You know, she's the cultural aspects of it and all that. Yes. And just the way things are run sometimes, um, you know, if there's a good old boy system going in the ward where all the leaders know each other really well, you know, (laughs) you know, recreate together, go on vacations together, things like that. You know, she notices stuff like that. And, and, and I, I mean, it's certainly true. I, I'm not <laughs> denying any of it. Definitely exists. So not, not, you know, that's, that's the way it is, but I, in, in many times, but I, I just don't get bothered by it. And she does. And so sometimes we'll have some interesting discussions about that. And, and, um, 
she a lot of people struggle like that they struggle with trusting completely that the lord is in charge or that he he knows what's going on or yeah. that he that he's not okay with practices that are not according to his will but that he has said he's going to let the wheat grow with the tares, and he is, and he wants us to be okay with that. And it's not part of to, the plan. It's, it, he, it's all part it of the is plan. He's acknowledging that people will always have their agency, and he's never going to take that away. He's He never is. Now, there will be a day where evil is you know, bank, uh, vanquished, and uh, there is none in his kingdom. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, but, but that's not now. It's not now, and he's and he has said, you know, that there needs to be some real patience here before the sifting. So, anyway, I, I see things like that, and it makes me sad because, I mean, she's she's salt of the earth. She's wonderful, but there's a lot of pain in her in her membership sometimes. Absolutely. And so I want to go back to the reason why I even brought that up because that's really not just to brag and say, oh, look at us. I wanna I want to point out a reason why perhaps that's part of. Like maybe part of a reason why, you know, well into our adulthood, we we still are very active and as you put it, believers, which actually you're you're dead on there because me as a believer, however that came about with obviously the help of my parents and my older siblings and everything, um, has kept me tethered to the church. And I've been very open about not always having a temple recommend, but I've always been a believer. That has been one thing that I've always believed and that's what's kept me at least physically active, maybe not spiritually active, but certainly physically active. I've never left the church. Um, but I bring that up because my mission friend, I can't even remember who it was exactly, um, had said he thought maybe it was due to some promise that President Hinckley gave families back in the nineties that if they had family home evening regularly, that they would stay like strong in the church. And I, and even if that's not true, that President Hinckley never made a promise like that or anything, well, he did. Like I mean, there could be I, truth to it. Be, yes. I, I, talking about, about like how you could yeah. keep a marriage happy and healthy by regular you know, study together and individually and things like that. Like, just like you could do with the family, family home evening on a regular basis. Well, I mean, there have been promises like that. So I don't mean to say that the prophets haven't made some pretty strong statements about that. Nevertheless, um, you know, we, I know personally of a lot of uh, families who have done those things and their children have not remained believers or involved or active or attached to the church. And some of them have even become anti. So I think we just have to realize that, First of all, God isn't just talking about now, you know, it's not over till it's over. So there, and there's that famous quote that John Widsoe gave of the prophet Joseph's, um, and I never get it exactly right, I haven't memorized it, but it's something like, you know, that the prophet taught, and he never taught a more comforting doctrine that, you know, though the sheep may wander, speaking of children, that at the end, you know, God will go and gather them or something like that, you know, so it's, and, and while obviously he won't interfere with agency, and we do get what we want, uh, Alma 29 and lots of other places that say God granted them to men according to their desire or words to that effect. So I, you know, I, I think what he's saying is that families really are forever. And even if we're not all in the same kingdom, because we've chosen different levels of light or different levels of what God is willing to give us, that that doesn't mean that we won't have these these attachments forever. So I, I don't want to say that because even though, you know, maybe most people listening to this podcast are, are in your stage of life or, or younger, but a lot of them, you know, I mean, they'll know people who, who have children who have grown up and have left. And, and I think it's really important to, to be comforted that this no empty chair idea is false doctrine. 
You know, sometimes you'll hear that in a meeting where somebody says, we need to have no empty chair. If you go to the temple as a family, everybody needs to be there. You know, we all want to be in the kingdom together. You know, let's not have any empty chairs. And I think that that creates a lot of pain for people who have children that they're not sure are going to come back. And I don't think that that promise um, abrogates agency at all. I think God's saying your family is going to be forever. And and that's where we do sealings for everybody because everybody gets sealed in the family of Adam and Eve. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's going to be in the celestial kingdom, but everybody's going to be in the family. Hmm. And I think that that's God's dominion. And he, he there will be happiness knowing that our our loved ones are fine and happy. And I think we're going to have contact. We know that God himself can cloak his glory to come to earth and appear to Joseph Smith with, with the Savior. They can cloak that, that amazing glory that would incinerate otherwise. So why would there not be that chance to visit, you know, and maybe we're going to be omnipresent. I don't know. That would be really nice because <laughs> I would never be late anywhere again. And mm. that would be a life changer for me. So, um, <laughs> for my clients yeah. and my family. So anyway, I um, I don't know how that works, but I, I believe it. I believe it absolutely that, that he's not going to give us these people that we feel so close to and are bonded to in so many ways and then rip us apart forever. Like, why would he have offered that plan and why would any of us have agreed? I just don't think that's who the God is that we worship. And so... Again, not to abrogate agency or to say that we're all going to the kingdom because we're, I mean, we're going to a kingdom, but we're not all going to the celestial kingdom and we're not all going to the top level of celestial kingdom. But that doesn't mean that family won't be forever. And I think that we suffer needlessly about some of those things. Okay, but what were you saying about the promises? There is power in those things. You know, there are some interesting studies that I saw recently and actually an interesting book called The Biology of Belief by a cell biologist. So this guy's coming from hard science. I mean, he taught in medical schools for most of his career. Couldn't have a more different background than my own. So it's fascinating to me when I read something by somebody who... It's possible he's an atheist even, right? I don't think he is. Although, you know, he doesn't really get into God, but he... But he definitely believes in in kind of the energy of the spirit, you know. And he came he came from kind of Newtonian physics, which is like A leads to B leads to C leads to D. It's very linear, and if something's wrong, you have to go check the sequence, whatever. And he's and then he really got into quantum physics, where it's like energy and everything's related to everything else. So anyway, it's fascinating because he does talk about belief and and how powerful it is. He doesn't really get into religion or anything, but he's definitely talking about a power that comes from believing in things. And it's, I find it fascinating, but I guess, okay, what was I going to say about this guy? That, um, that, you know, we come from these whole different ways of looking at things, and yet we both got to the same place when it came to things like um, uh, psychological disorders, because <laughs> he talks about depression and anxiety, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I say that, I say that. So I think it's, it's really fascinating that if we're seeking truth, we find it, is my point, right? But also that... Um, and I think I got I got off track in my own head here. But what I was saying before about about um, the data that I was looking at, some of it was quoted by this guy who said that um, there is a lot of evidence to support that parents have a gigantic influence on their children. Which I mean, I think if if we just all take a moment, we know that. Mm-hmm. Again, it doesn't take away agency, and people can reject or accept or magnify or continue or discontinue. I mean, all of that we see. There are plenty of examples of all of those choices, but 
But there's an impact. There's an influence. So I guess even though I think we need to not get hung up about the promises in a way that we get hurt, thinking that God has broken his promises because all our kids aren't perfect, because even though we do family home evening or scripture reading and prayer, you know, religiously, but to recognize that there is an impact. Of course there's an impact. And it would, it's better to do those things than to not. Does that make sense? There's a sweet spot in the middle of those things without trying to get so anal about it that we get that we get totally, you know, bent out of shape or angry at God or we feel betrayed or bereft or, you know, upset about the hereafter because our kids don't, you know, perfectly line up with what we want for them. That's not necessary. It's going to be okay. And on the other hand, to think that those things don't matter is ridiculous because they do. And, it, and many prophets have said that. I mean, there's the proverb, right? Um, Train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. Is that a, a one-to-one promise? No, it's not. But there is definitely an impact that comes. Your dad gave a great story once. Well, it wasn't really a story, but he, he had come to, I used to have him come and talk to my classes every semester about adoption when Family Services was still doing adoption. And, and I was of teaching. of course, being taught part-time at BYU, just for reference. Right. It was when I was there. And um, and he did a great presentation and the kids would ask questions. And there was a kid that asked this question about um, his own adopted brother. He said that there had been, I don't know, four or five biological children born, and but the family had plenty of means and they wanted to share it and they adopted the child. But, you know, a family of that many children is, prob- is not going to be able to adopt a healthy baby. So they got a kid from the foster care system or something like that, you know, that was an older kid who'd already had some trauma. And the kid was difficult. And um, he said that, you know, we showed all the love we could. And my parents were amazing and all these opportunities. And we really embraced this brother. And he said, we don't even know where he is now. You know, I I guess he'd finished high school. And he said, we don't know where he is. You know, we love him. But, you know, it's heartbreaking to think, you know, what we, we tried to do. And, and, you know, that with all that, you know, that tie in of our hearts, investing in, in this family member that now, you know, that it's come to this. And, and your dad gave a great answer. He said, don't ever underestimate the gift of love that you gave that brother. Don't ever underestimate. It's not over. You think his life would have been better if no one had loved him? If no one had taken him in? No. He said, and you know what? It takes a while to see fruit. I don't remember what words dad used, but that was a message. And he, and he talked about this baby that came into the system for adoption in the South, years ago, when, you know, mixed race children were not highly sought after, and they are now, you know, people will take Certainly. babies, everybody just wants children, and there are so many that want children to adopt. But anyway, so this mother had not been honest about the father being black, so that the child would be mixed race, and uh, she also didn't pass on the information that her she was getting from her obstetrician, telling her that there was a serious birth defect that they could detect. And this was years ago, so they didn't have all the tests to say exactly what it was, but they knew there was something wrong with this baby. And when the baby was born, you know, then it was seen, of course, that it was mixed race, but not just that. The baby had been born with only a brain stem. No gray matter. I didn't even know that was possible. Yeah, well, there are all kinds of things with brain problems. I mean, there's water on the brain and there are all kinds of microcephalines. Anyway, it, it's a terrible birth defect. It's not a super common, thankfully, but it was, um, yeah. And they didn't expect the child to live more than a few months. And it didn't live long, but it, um, 
And they said the child will not, you know, is blind, can't hear, will never recognize anybody, will never respond, will never, you know, have emotions, positive emotions to display. And they sent the word out in the system. Here's the deal with this baby. Is there anybody who's willing to adopt it? And there were three couples who immediately said we would take that child. So a selection was made. The couple adopted that was chosen um, adopted the child. That child lived like, I mean, they really thought it would be months, but lived like three years or something and showed obvious recognition to the parents and smiled and laughed. Wow. I mean, there was interaction there. And this was a brainstem only. Like, that's not even the limbic brain that you talk about back there in the amygdala. It was just the brainstem. And the doctors could hardly believe it. But, I mean, anyway, Dad was saying, don't underestimate what love can do. Just don't ever underestimate it. It's never a waste to love people. And I often refer to this wonderful message in Galatians chapter 6. It's an amazing message. Um, and it's so familiar. We look, we overlook it, I think, in, because it's so familiar and seems so simple. It's um, verse 7, the law of the harvest. And we know what that is, right? Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. But we, we seem to skip over the first part of it, which says kind of some surprising warnings about be not deceived. God is not mocked. And I remember once when I was teaching that in seminary, I'm asking the kids, why would God start such a simple principle with such a powerful warning? I mean, those are powerful words. Be not deceived. And then God is not mocked, which we don't hear all that often, but it's a stern warning. Yeah, right? and, it's, and it's particularly stern in a very specific place that we go to often in the temple and we mm-hmm. hear that. And that there's a, there's a reason why it says that in the temple, too. That's right. That's right. Because that would be a mockery. And he doesn't, anyway, he's warning us that this is serious business. So here he's saying these same words in this simple plant a carrot, get a carrot setting. And so I'm talking to these kids and going, why does he put such a stern warning on something that seems so obvious? I mean, does anybody plant a carrot and expect to get, you know, a banana or a tomato or a watermelon? No. So why the stern warning? And then, you know, this light bulb comes off and I'm like, because we're deceived all the time. That young man in my class was being deceived. Why did we bother? That's being deceived. Why did we bother to love and invest? Are you kidding? Like you really don't believe that you plant those seeds and that there's going to be a harvest? Because God's telling you there is. He's saying any action that we take with an honest and good intent will yield a harvest. That's what he's saying. Period. Whatsoever. A man soweth. And again, the conditions are that there is an honest intent and that we're trying to do a good thing. That shall ye reap. Well, and it does go the other way, too, because it does tell us if you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. So, I mean, I guess it goes both ways. But often where we're deceived is where we try to plant good seeds and we don't see the harvest. And we think, you know, this isn't working. Why isn't the Lord? Missionaries specifically. Oh, it happens all the time. Little Irish boy story, that stuff. Yes, yes. And so many of them. I mean, I talked to a return missionary once who was really depressed because everybody he had baptized had, you know, been inactive before he left the mission. And he was like, you know, why? Why? I learned this hard language and I, you know, whatever, whatever. And, and I, you know, I talked to him about this and I said, what are you saying? What are you saying? Are you, you know, really, is that what this is about? And plus, 
God works the harvest any way he wants. There's that Oliver Granger story, which we don't have to get into, but in section I always forget it at 116, where he says, your sacrifice shall be of more worth to me than your increase. In other words, you just do the work and don't worry about the increase because I am looking at your intent and your effort and I am the Lord of the harvest. So stop worrying about when the harvest comes or what it looks like. But I'm telling you, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. And I think that's so important. You know, you plant a carrot, you're going to get a carrot. It's just in the time and the way that the Lord knows is best. And some of them don't happen until after this life. And I know you've heard this before, but at that same time that I was teaching that lesson in seminary, I was, anyway, there are a couple parts of this that I'm going to skip, but there was another part, which was that just this previous Sunday, we had sung, we are sowing that hymn in our hymn books. I don't know if people sing this very often. We never sing it in our ward, but I sang it growing up in Indiana. And so I was familiar with it. And you know, it's not my favorite hymn musically because it's kind of boring music and the alto line is really boring. <laughs> but but I love that hymn now. I love it. And I started loving it right then because I pulled it out and I was reading it to the kids. And it tells us all these places that we plant seeds where they don't grow. Like on the dry unyielding plain, you know, by idle hearts forgotten, flung at random on the air. Uh, seeds that um, you know, are cast out in crowded places, trodden underfoot of men. Anyway, it gives several scenarios in the first three verses, I think it is, where it doesn't, you know, it doesn't look like those seeds are going to grow. It just looks like they're, they're toast. And then there's one in, the, in verse three, I think it says, seeds that live and grow and flourish when the sower's hand is cold. Uh, there's a warning. Like it might not even happen until after you're gone from this planet. Mm. But they can still live and grow and flourish. So don't you bet against God. Don't. Don't bet against him because he has made this promise and he keeps his promises. It's who he is. So then the last beautiful verse, thou that knowest all our weakness, leave us not to sow alone. Bid thine angels guard the furrows where the precious grain is sown till the fields are ripe with glory, filled with heaven's ripened ears, filled with fruit of life eternal from the seed we sowed in tears. That's so beautiful. I can't believe I said that without getting choked up because it makes me it makes me really emotional that just don't bet against God and his harvest and keep planting seeds. Now, bringing this back to why you aren't married. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even sure what, like, where the connection is. How did are. we get here? <laughs> I, I well, want to say this real quick, though. That holds special meaning, specifically dad responding that way because of his adoption, of his own adoption. Mm -hmm. And so that's mm -hmm. obviously something that he not only witnessed firsthand with, you know, placing specific children in specific homes as the director of adoption agencies with family services when they were still doing that, but he lived that. That was his upbringing. He did grow up in a loving home. And that's pretty powerful hearing that story. I don't know if I'd, I may have heard that, but I certainly didn't remember it. So I appreciate you bringing that up again. Anyway. Back to well, you. It's, it's so important to, to know that God is not mocked. If the seeds we plant will bloom and grow and flourish and create a harvest, but the Lord is the Lord of the harvest, and we have to stop worrying about when that is. So exactly. I haven't been planting marriage, marriage seeds. Is that what it is? Well, maybe not enough. And I think that, um, <laughs> well, apparently not enough. Well, that's because and, I don't want to go on first. dates that you or your friends want to set me up on. Well, I think that's a mistake, but that's my personal opinion. And because uh, I do think that, um, you know, you have to get a little less picky as you get 
as you get further along. Oh, and I'm I don't sure think that's, that's a bad thing. No, I, no I think it that. can be a good thing because I think a lot of us start out too picky. But I heard something really interesting just this morning. I was uh, listening to a quick media podcast about dating and stuff. And anyway, he had some data by a guy named, I even wrote it down. It was Henderson. He's a PhD or a PhD student. I couldn't, anyway, I'd have to go back and look. His name was Rob Henderson. And he's in psychology. And he did a study that was um, about uh, Tinder. And he, um, I guess, and I've never been on Tinder, but I certainly know what it is. And I guess you swipe left if you um, are saying no. Yeah. And you swipe right to say yes. Well, um, this is going to be surprising. I was was surprised. Um, Women on Tinder swipe right 4.5 percent of the time holy cow holy cow yeah. holy cow is right that, that men six yeah. percent of the time oh yeah i mean that that actually doesn't surprise me that it's that big of a disparity i'm i was surprised well i mean i, was, I probably couldn't have guessed that but yeah 60 is pretty dang high compared to 4.5 percent but yeah, it. I mean, it's definitely clear that men are on there for much different reasons. Or I guess I should say broader reasons than women. And I would agree. I would agree. And we all know that it's become really sexualized and a lot of people are looking for hookups. So yeah. that's, that is one of the, the factors that needs to be considered in that disparity. Because if they're just looking for something brief and meaningless then sure, they're going to have a broader um, filter. I mean, uh, you know, they're looking at, at just... Casting a wider net, yeah. Exactly. But um, but women are looking for, you know, true love. In many cases, not every case, obviously, but um, in a lot of cases, women are looking for something permanent. And then, I don't know if you're familiar, it's like you probably are, because I know I mentioned this, I'm pretty sure I mentioned it to you, there's a... a just a stick figure video that is done from the family Institute at the university of Austin called the economics of sex. Have you seen that one? No, I don't think so. Wait, that sounds kind of familiar actually. Sounds familiar. I highly recommend it. It's good to review and it's good for any of your listeners to take a look at it. It's easy to find on YouTube and uh, it's, it's just really straightforward about, I mean, there's nothing inappropriate or or weird about it. It's just talking about the uh, numbers and and what happens is that there's a real shift in power dynamics. If if there are more men that are looking for a permanent relationship than women, then women have greater power. And what happens is the morality of everybody's behavior increases. Improves, yeah. Women are the gatekeepers to sex. And if they have greater power because um, men are trying to find a good woman and there are not as many good women, then women can set that standard and say, well, I'm not just going to play around with anybody. I want... I want somebody who's serious and um, isn't just going to take advantage of me and move on. But when there are so many women and not as many men who are seeking a permanent relationship, then the general morality really decreases because women think that's a way to attract a guy is by lowering their, their, you know, lowering the gates, so to speak, and being more quick to engage in, in sexual behavior because maybe this will tie this guy to me. But it's it's a big mistake because guys aren't looking. I mean, that just makes it harder. I'm mean, again, what's the old adage? Why buy the the cow if when you can get the milk? Yeah. So women really shoot themselves in a the foot as a group, you know, because there are there are a lot of, of 
and I, again, I'm not trying to blame women or blame men. Everybody's responsible for their own behavior. And none of this is acceptable if we're members of the church and we know better. But, um, but these dynamics make a difference. And it does, um, it, it tells us a little bit about what's going on. Again, no excuses. Just because there are reasons that things are happening, that doesn't give us an excuse for turning our back on principles that are saving principles and yield happiness. And the others don't. So it's always sad when happiness is within our reach and we don't, we don't go for it, you know, we, yeah. we settle. But, um, so I do think that, and I remember talking about this again when I was teaching seminary, and this is now, gosh, it's, it's almost 30 years since I've been teaching seminary. But I remember talking to the kids back then because already I was noticing that, like, there was such a big change in the dynamics of dating. Um, when I was in high school, okay, that's a long time ago, no question, um, most of the dances were, were men's choice. I think there were two dances that were women's choice, Sadie Hawkins, and there was a Christmas one that was a, a girl's choice uh, that one of the sororities did at high school that is sponsored and, and girls would ask. But um, all the others were, were men's choice. And that had significantly changed by the time my kids were in high school. So it was at least 50-50. For me, it was 50-50. And, and then it, it got to now where anybody can ask anybody and, or, the, or go alone. You know? well, I didn't so, even know that. Yeah. That's what it is now? Oh. Well, pretty much. I mean, I think that there are still some who kind of go by the traditional thing, but not, not as much anymore. Hmm. And, and I think this is, and, and I talked to the kids about it. I said, like, I know this is, you know, you can't change the tide. That's what's happening in our society. But I said, I just want to point out that it's a problematic because women have a natural interest in somebody permanent because they're going to bear children and they need somebody to support that not just financially, but in every way. And certainly we hope financially too. We hope that young men are preparing to do that. So they have that interest in, in motherhood in many cases. And again, that's diminishing in our secular selfish world where there are a lot of women who don't care that much or have been deceived into thinking that it's not that important, but there's still a lot of women who want that. And um, so they, they have that interest in the permanent relationship Boyd K. Packer said this so many years ago, but many others have said, too, that that, that strong sex drive that men have is, is designed to help bond them to a wife and children. But only if he can't just play around without marriage. And, and where our society morals have dropped so much and it's so common to become sexually involved with people, then we lose the advantage of that drive. Because if it can be satisfied without commitment to marriage, we're going to have fewer men commit. And that hurts everybody. The men aren't going to grow up and the women aren't going to have partners. And, and then families are delayed and, and uh, society doesn't, I mean, everybody loses. Everybody loses. So it's, it's really tragic. And you see this in Isaiah. It was prophesied by Isaiah that in the last days, seven women would take hold of one man and say, you know, we'll eat our own food and clothe ourselves, but just give us your name to take away our reproach. And I could, I could start to see it happening then. I'm like, we're seeing the fulfillment of prophecy right now where, where things are shifting so dramatically that women have lost their power in those relationships because, because they've lowered their, their moral standards. Right. And again, this isn't blaming women for the behavior of men, but we all have to be responsible for ourselves. And if we don't hold those standards, we don't get the blessings of the way God designed things. That makes sense. Um, so... I do have to kind of shift topics here. I have here. to add something. I okay. do have to add something. Let's hear it. I would see in, in counseling, sometimes young couples would come in and 
there be issues because marriage is challenging and hard and it helps us grow up if we do it right. But sometimes people just want to opt out. And I would see that sometimes these young men who had not invested all that much during the courtship because the women took the lead, because that happens so much now with girls' choice everything and girls would set everything up and basically almost propose and then, you know, set up the whole marriage and whatever. And he has invested so little that when there are problems in marriage, he's ready to jump Mm -hmm. because things work what you pay for them. Yeah. And that it breaks my heart. I'm like, this is good for nobody. Yeah. So, I mean, we really we really could do better because we do have the gospel. And if it doesn't matter if we have made mistakes in the past, it's what we do now. It's what we do with the rest of our lives. Do we go forward following God's principles and deciding that we're done being adolescents? There's a lot written and has been for decades about extended adolescence in our society. And it started, they started worrying about this back in the 60s. But think about how it is now, where we have kids living in their basement, the parents' basement forever, playing video games, you know. Even if they got a job, they, they don't really grow up. You know, they still hang out instead of, like, seriously dating to find a partner. And, and they expect some fantasy thing about, you know, I'm going to find the right person and we're just going to know it and it's all going to be easy. Well, no, it's not. And as we get older, the the market thins. So anyway, but I do think too, that people who've had problems in the past and have a past sometimes worry too much about that. And they set their sights lower. And I think if you really are repentant and you want to get back on the right path, then don't set your sights lower. You set your sights for yourself really high and you keep those standards right where they should be. And you live worthy of them and then expect to find somebody who is wanting to do the same with or without a past but don't take yourself out of the the market and think that well because i've made mistakes in the past i can't expect to have somebody you know who's living the commandments all that carefully and it seems to me like we tend to be pretty casual about some of that stuff i i hear from a lot of single adult clients some of them divorced some of them never married that there is a lot of casual observance, I mean, not very good observance of the standards amongst active single members. So, right. you know, they'll, before they have a, a weekend activity or whatever, they start at the bar or the, whatever, and they drink. But oh, they're yeah, all in church on Sunday. Tell me about this. Yeah. That's right. Um, and I'm like, really? Really? And so, you're going to find your eternal companion there? Yeah. Let's. So that's funny because I can't help but think – and. This is going to be the shifting of topics as we're kind of like, I would like to maybe close out here semi soon if that's even possible. But um, I mean, obviously, it'd be nice to have you back at some point. It's go figure. We there's tangent after tangent after tangent in our conversations. That is not solely because of you. That is because of me as well, clearly. Um, But I did want to bring this up because I don't know if I've told you about it, but Speaking of, you know, other rivalries going on, you know, like one-sided rivalry I have with Hank Smith, who doesn't even know I exist. But by the way, let me clear, clarify, he unblocked me on Twitter. So there's that really? at least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. He and I are buds again, but um, but I still don't think he knows I exist. Uh, also, um, and, I, and by the way, I do like what he's doing in large part. So I don't even want to make this comparison between Hank Smith and who I'm about to bring up, um, which is another Hank, believe it or not. Uh hmm. It's, uh, I think he's doing some very good things. I just never really, I didn't love his approach. I thought it was a little cheese ball. I thought it was a little bit fluff and just kind of like, hey, there's not a lot of depth in here and things like that. And that's all it was. So that's, that's why I'd kind of go after him. But anyway, the other Hank I want to talk about is Dr. Julie Hanks, who I've talked about on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've told her, I've told you about her. 
And I have a screenshot here that I'm going to read to you that just like epitomizes the problems I have with her, problems you have with her. And we even kind of talked about this on an earlier podcast. It was either the, I think it was the first one where you and I got on when she had basically, oh, yeah. she, was, she was one of the writers of that letter that was defended Natasha Helfer and how she said that they were saying she just should have never been excommunicated or sex communicated right. as I put it on the podcast. Um, <laughs> she got a question on her Instagram and I'm going to read both the question and the answer and it kind of just makes you sick and I'm just, I already know your thoughts, but it'd be nice to kind of like reiterate this because I hear what you're saying about marriage and how like the standards need to be kept regardless of what situations we're in. Like that's what it's all about. It all comes down to that. And I can only help but think that Julie Hanks is saying almost the exact opposite. And maybe that's me being biased, but I just seriously, it's her, her whole thing is it's so like I had put before in the podcast. It's so Nahorian. It's live your life Mm -hmm. the way you want. It's, there, there yeah. should be, like, no consequences for your actions, essentially. Um, everybody will be saved. There's no need for an atonement. Honestly, if you keep pushing Julie Hanks and you keep saying, why, like, why does it not matter, ultimately, that's the conclusion. That's the only conclusion she could come to, which is, oh, well, I guess, I guess it really doesn't matter that there's an atonement because there's, if, we're, if nothing's going to happen at the end for us to have to pay for our consequences or our actions, then what's the point of the Savior dying for us? But anyway. Right. That's right. So... The question was, do you ever feel like the standard slash evidence-based research of your profession is at odds with the gospel? If so, how do you navigate that? So she goes into this whole thing. She says, as a professional, I'm required ethically to practice and teach based on research and best practices. An example that people, people often misinterpret is what I say about the impact of porn use on relationships. From a research-based perspective, the impact of porn use on a relationship depends on the specific relationship and the individual's beliefs about porn. Many LDS people have interpreted that as me saying, porn is okay, or go look at porn, which is not what I said. The church teaches all porn use impacts couples negatively, which is not backed by research. Wow. And then she says, this account is about mental health and relationships. It is not about teaching LDS church doctrine. I'm not a spokesperson for the church. Oh, you don't say. Anyway. And yet, so she's quoted in relief societies all the time. Go figure. And a lot of young LDS women are, are kind of glued to her stuff. And, and, and they're good young women. I don't mean that they're even looking for trouble, but I think that they, they, I mean, I don't know, of course, each one of them and what their motives are, but I think there are people who do get deceived uh, by these kinds of, of uh, messages. So, let me say this. Um, and I didn't, I didn't see that. And I don't you know, usually see what she does. So I appreciate you bringing it to my attention always. And then, by the way, let's, let's just clarify real quick. You are a PhD in human marriage, family, human development. You yeah. are a licensed clinical social worker, marriage and family specifically. So if there's anybody that is qualified to talk, talk about this in contrast to what Dr. Hanks is saying... It's you, which is why I really want to hear your opinion. My 48th anniversary, so there you go, and raised a bunch of kids that I love dearly and and think they're wonderful. But anyway, this is um, okay. Here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say that first of all, that's not accurate about the 
the research. Now, can she find research that says that? Of course she can, because there's a million research studies and uh, a lot of them are garbage. Well, it's actually, <laughs> on that note, sorry, this is a quick tangent, but I do have thoughts on that, obviously, because I've been in higher education plenty, as you're yep, aware. You um, people hardly ever do, uh, what would be the word, like oppo research, right? Like, when you say oppo, meaning so, like the opposing research. Like, for example, oh, right. why does the right. video game research always say it doesn't cause violence? It's because <laughs> the only people researching it are the people that love playing video games, and it's often funded by people like that. Exactly. You know, like, like, that's not let's not kill ourselves. That, research money comes from somewhere. Exactly. You could take that general principle and apply it to most forms of research, and I think there's no exception yeah. with pornography. Yeah. So. um and there's certainly because the people funding research have agendas and even people who who you might say don't seem to have an agenda. And I would even say that there are some that don't fewer now than ever before. But um, I, I think there are some people who really just want to try to learn what's out there. But there's no such thing as pure data. There just isn't because any and this is the Heisenberg print, um, uncertainty from way back centuries ago where Heisenberg said um, that even the act of observing something changes that thing's behavior. And it's true. We know that if people want to stop smoking, they should record every time they take a cigarette. And guess what? Their incidence of smoking decreases because the act of them observing it that closely changes their behavior, their behavior. So even this happened, there was a study. I get really excited about this. Sorry. But no, I remember reading something in a Newsweek magazine when I was a mom at home and your dad was in graduate school in Oklahoma. I remember reading this. It was so fascinating to me. In the science section, it talked about a study that was being done on the movement of light. And they were um, sending these blasts of light through or to a metal plate that had holes and openings of various sizes and shapes. And then they had a photosensitive screen behind it. And they would see how the, the pattern of the light went through those different openings, which they could turn and change and whatever, and then displayed on the photosensitive screen and a computer recorded it. So this was something that they were doing to see how the light moved. And then one night, the, the machines got left on. Nobody intended to do that, but they accidentally left the whole thing on so that they were gone all night and the thing kept shooting light and it, at this metal thing and then it would go through and display on the photosensitive screen and be recorded by the computer. They came back in the morning and they saw what had happened and they looked to see at the patterns of light and they found that the light moved differently when there was no one in the room or nobody there observing. And I was like, this is a Heisenberg uncertainty. And I had a bachelor's degree in sociology at the time, but I, I knew about the Heisenberg uncertainty. And I'm like... And plus, my parents were PhDs, so we talked about this, and they were incredibly faithful. I'm always going to be grateful for that, that they never let their um, their learning make them think that they were wise. Like it warns in 2 Nephi 28, when they, they think they're wise. Right. That, that is, by happened. the way, that is a, 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 that was written for higher education, by the way. <laughs> it was. It absolutely was. Yeah. And I was telling somebody the other day that if you go through higher education, sadly, most people miss this, but you know what you should learn is how little you know. I mean, it's kind of the point is to have humility and realize that, wow, the more I study, the more I see. But that doesn't mean I understand everything. And I'm just going to be a humble seeker of truth because I can learn truth if I have an honest heart and I'm willing to seek. But my point is that, you know, research should always be taken with a grain of salt. There was a cartoon in a professional journal. I don't remember which one, but I saw this during my PhD program. <laughs> I'll never forget it. Two, two researchers looking at their lab and one of them saying to the other, no, if I hadn't believed it, I wouldn't have seen it. 
<laughs> like bingo, That's so bingo. Great. And even with the most honest desire to learn, we cannot completely eliminate bias. The way we choose to measure things represents a bias. Now, again, it may not even be intentional, but it's it's there. The way you ask the question, there's a million ways to ask the same question. Yeah, that's right. And so, what's this real, is, real quick though? I was going to say, like, it's un, it's it's the hubris that is really involved in the idea that not only they can discover everything, but they do know everything. And oh, and the weight, like to not acknowledge the weight that comes with that, by the way. Yeah, the influence that you might have yeah. on the unsuspecting who don't really understand the process and assume that, you, you know, you have any idea of what you're talking about exactly. instead of like, and that's why I used to tell you kids all the time when you were growing up, don't let anybody say science has proven and you believe it. Because that is that just shows an that's a actually a flaw. The, the most honest scientists would say science doesn't actually prove anything. It only disproves. That's right. Yeah. They would say the latest hypothesis is. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and guess what? We expect that to be replaced as the wheel continues to turn. If we are honest, we're going to find something better. I mean, look at the travel of light. You know, there's there's Newtonian physics and then there's quantum physics and then there's. You know, I mean, I mean, Einstein get, took us a big step forward, but it went beyond Einstein. And that's just what happens. And it doesn't mean that they were that they were ill-intended or trying to deceive. But we we peel off the layers of truth little by little. And it's and, and that humility, as opposed to the hubris, is so incredibly important to, to realize that, like, hey, this is what we see for now. But then God sees everything. And if we believe that, then why would we ever let research get in the way of revelation ever? Like, really, are we saying scientists figured out something God doesn't know? Yeah. I mean, that that kind of arrogance is, is just beyond me. It's beyond me. Yeah. To think that, like, oh, well, you know, if God just knew better, you know, if God, you know, went, went to my PhD program or whatever, then he would have a clue about how porn impacts people. I mean, seriously? And you can find any kind of research you want because they're all kind of, like I said, people are sponsored by all kinds of different interest groups and they have their own biases and their own experience. And how, well, and you their, know, their version of God is saying what um, they want them to do. And that's the whole, I mean, that's what that's idol true. worship is. Like that's because they, they would actually say your own image. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> agrees with everything I say. Funny thing. Yeah. They're not saying God needs to learn the same way we're learning. They're saying my God already believes this. Already knows that. You know, exactly. that's true. That's a very good clarification. But um, I think it's just so, so sad when she's like, well, it, it just impacts people differently. You know, evil is evil and good is good. And, and what does Christ say in, in Moroni 7, which is a letter from Mormon to his son Moroni, beautiful, beautiful letter. And he says, see that you do not judge that which is good and of God to be of the devil or that which is of the devil to be of God. I mean, he is, it's a stern warning again, like see that you do not judge incorrectly. Um, and he says, I give it unto you to judge. And the way is as plain that you may know good from evil as the daylight is from the dark night. And basically he's saying everything which leads you to Christ is good. And everything which takes you away is bad. Now, let's just look at porn. Is this leading us to reverence for women? Plus, are we going to just separate this from the fact that the entire porn industry is hand in glove with human trafficking? Mm. Are we going to just ignore that and say that like, well, it, it juices up our love life? Okay. So it doesn't matter how many people are being exploited, how many children are being traded and, and adults. I mean, I mean, that to me is so heinous. I can't even get my head around it. I know that there's research and I read that I haven't been on this website for a long time ago, but it's still very active, right? That fight the new drug website. Right, that, yeah, that, yeah. 
created several years ago and they do, I think they do a good work. I don't, I don't have current understanding what they're doing, but when I first became acquainted with them many years ago, I was impressed and they have a research section on their website, of course. And they, and you know, what was one of the ones I've never forgotten is a study that shows that people who look at porn rate their partners, whether married or, you know, dating more negatively. Shocker. <laughs> like like yeah. shocker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're looking at this stuff and gee, your partner all of a sudden not as attractive, not as easy to live with, not as whatever as your fantasy life that is the total counterfeit of anything meaningful. So yeah, these things do damage. Which seeds are we planting? We were just talking about the law of the harvest. What seeds are we planting in our own hearts and minds? And and you don't think those are going to grow and, and also flourish? I mean, it's just so sick. Plus, one thing I learned after I started doing counseling, I mean, I already had heard all the warnings about porn was bad, and I believed them. But one thing I saw for myself as a counselor was that men who use porn, and now it's a lot of women, too, who are using porn, but men particularly I saw who used porn became cold, which is kind of an extension of the part where they're more critical of their partners. But really, it was an, it was an extension where they their hearts hardened. And they were they were really insensitive to their wives and to their children. I mean, it's like the love of men had waxed cold in them. And I think that's one of the meanings of that prophecy, that in the last days, the love of men will wax cold. And I, it can happen to women, too. But men are particularly susceptible. It's all that well, testosterone. that scripture specifically is talking about men and women. I mean, not specifically, I guess. but I agree. I mean, it's, human, people, it's humanity, people. right? I mean, women can throw yeah. away their babies, which, again, is beyond understanding. Right. Right. It happens. So, yes, I do believe that men it has. Men may lead the way. <laughs> like there's, yeah. Well, I, see well I think men are particularly susceptible. You've got a lot of that testosterone hormone. And I think it does make you vulnerable, which is why you're supposed to honor your priesthood all the time. Because that keeps you safe from being too susceptible to the way Satan wants to play on that hormone. Because it is a powerful hormone. Which we uh, we actually talked about that I believe in this the second time I had you on. I think we did. Yeah, we mm-hmm. talked about harness testosterone, which is a term you came up with, which I completely believe in, and I I likened it to this movement that they talk about out there, which I kind of got some funny feedback for from people. They're like, "Did you really talk with your mom about semen retention?" <laughs> it's like, yeah, I did, because I think it's fascinating, because that's the mainstream component to what you're talking about. Relig- the religious side is is. Uh, harness testosterone, as you put it, and I think the the mainstream non-religious side has is, discovered a pattern there too. Yeah, exactly. There's there's a movement out there. People that may or may not be religious, but they don't really tie religion into it. They just say that there's power in it, regardless. And I think they've tapped See, that into makes something. Sense to me. That it does make sense to me because, yeah. and again, because it's not just you know being driven by appetites. It's actually harnessing those appetites, which you know that whole natural man is an enemy to God and it's an enemy to us if we let it again, drive the bus. So I, anyway, you're right. And it's all connected, but I, 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 I do want to say a couple other things about, about dating if I can. Okay. Let's, let's, let's close it out with this. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I, I've said this for so many years. I know I do a lot of marriage counseling and I work with a lot of single people too, but I just think that, you know, President Kimball said a long time ago that they, the death of marriage or, you know, the end of a marriage, or I guess I don't remember how he said it exactly, but it had to do with divorce specifically, that the seed of that is always selfishness. So it was always that kind of the root cause of divorce comes down somewhere to selfishness, not necessarily on both people's parts. One person could be, you know, addicted or whatever, not trying to do it. The other person will never be perfect because nobody's perfect. But, you know, it could certainly be one person's selfishness that actually sinks the ship or it could be both. 
And I've seen that myself up close and personal and heard it, of course, even, you know, from people who come into me after they've been divorced and, you know, I hear their stories and you can certainly see that President Kimball was right on the mark. There are studies that, you know, have always, you know, the measuring narcissism. And, and I, I think, met, I know we've talked about this, but, you know, I, I get a little bit concerned that we throw that term around, you know, <laughs> all over the place now. Everybody's a narcissist. And there are a zillion YouTube videos on narcissism and a ton of stuff online about it. And I, I really, I mean, I'm a little concerned because I think we overdiagnose anyway. What? And I think that sometimes we make those, I mean, narcissism, if you know the whole, you know, DSM criteria, whatever. I mean, it used to be what we called, a, what did we call that? It was a personality disorder. And it was an axis two disorder, which meant it's not going to change, basically. And now they don't do axis one, axis two, but they should, because that was a pretty good distinction, that these are things that are so deep-rooted that kind of don't expect them to change. Well, I don't think that's true of everybody who sort of qualifies these days for, you know, the term narcissist, um, especially the way we're defining it, which is kind of ultra-selfishness, the way I see it. I just think it's selfishness run amok. And then so... I think it's hard for single people to, who live as an adult for any, the longer they live as an adult, I think it's harder to not be selfish because you don't really have to consider somebody else in, in your calculations. Yeah, no and I'm, not, yeah. I'm not even blaming the single person because I mean, you are on your own. So you get to steer your own ship, but it's just really hard to avoid, you know, meeting your own needs in a pretty convenient way. And, and I think that it's not good for us. It's not good for us. And anyway, some studies on narcissism have shown that men outpace women in, in uh, measurable narcissism. However, they measured this. I didn't look at the details. I just heard the results. But, um, but women are closing the gap. Shocker. And it's particularly that gap started to discernibly reduce with the advent of social media. Mm. So we all know that social media, you know, being everybody's highlight reel, you know, seems to increase covetousness and, you know, and depression because it's like everybody else is having a good time and I'm not. But you're comparing your own real life to somebody else's highlight reel. Highlight reel, yeah. And that never, and, and, never. And that, that has ramifications for marriage, too. When you look at married couples yeah. on social media, you're kind of like, oh, well, okay. Once I find that happy. person, we can get married as opposed to. Agreed. Yeah, Agreed. Working so I think that. You know, I've talked to a lot of young people, and they all do better when they're less on social media. They all do. Everybody well, does. Well, I thought this was interesting, by the way, and um, like we probably do need to close out here. But President Nelson gave the challenge or the invitation, I should say, to women to go on the social media fast. This was, I believe, back in 2018. And I don't really, I do remember when he did that. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm sure he'll ask men to do the same thing at some point. And he never did. So are women particularly susceptible to that type of, uh, those type of uh, outcomes when it comes to social media use? I think that it's demonstrable that teenage girls are. And, mm. and the depression and anxiety amongst teenage girls has really been very closely associated with social media. Is there any particular um, I mean, reason why? Um, you know, girls are really relational. I mean, women tend to be a little more relationally aware. So I think that... Um, I think it has to do when it comes to rearing children. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and we're, and it's good for us to be um, different, of course. And those things can be weaknesses or strengths, depending on, you know, how we use them. All of them exist on a spectrum in my, in my belief. Yeah. I believe so too. So, um, 
anyway, I think that that does make them vulnerable. They're they're really quick to compare. We know that um, like bullying for men is a little more straightforward. I'm not saying it's ever okay, and it can be really brutal from from men, but it it tends to be more physical and kind of like or just you know a big slam and then they're out. Um, but girls are more guilty of what they call uh, relational aggression, um, and that's that's brutal. That's brutal where they can really be your friend to your face and then pick you apart behind your back. Well, that seems like it could be like the, it's more psychological and that can have like long term yeah. dire consequences. Oh, it seems it, like it's yeah, it can be really brutal. So, I mean, it's interesting. Bruce Hafen gave a great speech called the the touch of human kindness. And it was back in the oh, like 1998, maybe at the World Congress of Geneva on family. And it's a great speech about. Um, women's quality and warmth and so on. But um, I quoted this a lot in my podcast on Ether or Esther. I'm sorry, not Ether, Esther. But um, but when it goes bad, it goes really bad because women kind of have to turn against their nature in order to lose that warmth, but they can do it. And, we, and I've seen that too. I've seen, I mean, men are not guilty of everything. There are horrible women too. Sadly, we can all be capable of turning against the goodness in our nature and yielding to the natural man. So anyway, but how sad. I mean, years ago, it was noted that women were closing the gap on the infidelity statistics. Um, mm-hmm. It used to be um, very, very predominantly men who cheated in marriage. And now that gap is closing. So I, again, you know, the whole world is going to hell and, and everybody is being affected. But we can do better. We can. I know we can. We really can build Zion in the midst of Babylon. Of course we can. And not only can we, but there are some people who are going to do it. So it's kind of like, are we going to get on the train or are we going to get out of the way? Because it's going to happen. There has to be a Zion people to meet the Savior when he comes. Not after he comes that we all of a sudden say like, oh, now that you've destroyed the wicked, we can be Zion. No, it's in the midst of Babylon. And I look at these young people. Do you know that the statistics on young, single young adult activity in like church attendance is like 18%? Oh, it's bad. It's I've seen it in my own family ward. It's since I've been in this ward, which by the way is a little over three years at this point, there have been, I mean, the young men were not very there. There weren't a lot of them anyway. But the, since I've been here, there were maybe six or seven. Half of them are not coming to church in the in the three year span that uh, I've been in this ward. And there's and there's no real particular reason why, just besides the fact that they've lost interest. From and see, I think that has to do with that kind of extended adolescence, because it's like if it's not fun enough or entertaining enough. And I think honestly, some of our young men's and young women's programs are somewhat contributing to this, at least because they tend to entertain rather than teach doctrinal principles. But the only place to find happiness is in the covenant. It's in living. Living the way God asks us to live, that doesn't mean we won't have challenges and troubles because those things help us grow and become more powerful, but it means we can find peace, we can find happiness, we can, we can feel good about ourselves because we see the growth and the development rather than just passing time. But when we're into that selfish place where it's like, if you're not entertaining me, then I'm out of here. And of course I got FOMO because there's a good party around the corner. You know, so I'm going to, I'm going to go and find that party or I'm going to go entertain myself or whatever. And I'm going to, and, and it's just this, it really is this extended adolescence. I mean, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be offensive to anybody, but, and I, and I've met with a lot of people who struggle getting married and I love these people because, and I love you, but I love all these people because they're good people. But I'm like, you're looking for love in all the wrong places. Like you you can't be just looking for like, how much fun can this be? It's got to be like, let me get serious about growing up. And let me start talk, talking and dating serious people 
who are not at every party because, you know, after a certain point, the serious ones have stopped going. Because they're, they're not in it for the rush or the social stuff or showing off their new outfits or, you know, their, whatever their muscles are, whatever. It's not about that. It's about I'm moving forward with my life. And I need, to, I need to find a partner. And you know what? I know it's harder than it used to be because there are a lot of women who want a career and they're not interested in children or whatever, or they don't want to be a full-time mom. And that's problematic to me too. And don't even get me started on immodest dressing because like, seriously? And then Tad Collister gets flayed yeah. on, on social media when he says, you get the guy, you get the kind of guy you dress for because then they're all accusing him of rape culture. And I'm like, yeah, but whose side are you on? Like, why do we want to make it harder for men to keep their covenants? Like, am I not my brother's keeper? And I can't tell you how many men I've talked to who are honestly trying to get over a porn addiction. Like, and honestly, they are doing the work and they are, they are holding themselves accountable and they're working hard and they say, but why does it have to be so hard at church? I'm like, you're right. Are we not our brother's keeper? And then you're just going to throw that in his face and say, well, you know, it's your fault and it's rape culture. If you expect me to keep my covenants where God has asked me to honor my own body and to wear garments correctly. Like, what are we asking for? Which seeds are we planting? What harvest do we think we're going to get? So if you want to get married, you got to be serious about it. And you've got to look for serious people. And they probably aren't flitting around the social scene. I'm sorry. That's just generally the case. No, I there's obviously... A lot of truth and power in what you're talking about. One thing, and I only say it because I love these single people. I know, I know. I asked, and I asked for this. I asked for you. Well, Um, I do say it with love, but I just there's no point in pulling the punches. It's about growing up. So, maybe we can kind of end with this thought. I I was talking actually with a good friend the other day, and it kind of dawned on me that perhaps part of what we have to change about how we think about the relationships we get in is that we tend to value kind of the thrill, you know, that spark, the romance, all that stuff. And that seems to weigh the heaviest and probably way too heavy um, as it is. And, uh, and we need to, it's like we need to shift the way we think about what is valuable in a relationship, which comes with what kind of what you're talking about, which is, you know, not just uh, strength in the gospel and the church, but also emotional security and just... Oh, yeah security in general where it's just steadiness steadiness. here's the thing with 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 that excitement it's it's like a graph that's just going very high and very low very high and very low it's It's volatile volatile. exactly whereas what may be a healthy actually strong and long-lasting relationship can come across as boring because you're never really deviating too much from that straight line there somewhere in the middle You're not trying to just go for the cheap thrill and then like come back to yourself. You know, it's like, no, I'm slow. I'm steady. I'm steady. I mean, how many times have we heard slow and steady wins the race? But it really does in life. It's that steadiness or stability is a good word too. Um, You know, I have a neighbor whose favorite word in the scriptures is steadfast. Mm. And I think that's just a beautiful word. I love that she loves it and I love it too. But it's really a great word, and you're right. And I mean, this is actually something as I was talking to Dad about this subject a little bit the other day, and um, he said, well, yeah, it's kind of like that Anne Marl Lindbergh's book, Gifts of the Sea, which I don't know if you know, but she was Charles Lindbergh, the pilot's um, wife, and they lost their first child. They knew tragedy. He was kidnapped and kidnapped. killed. Anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they, you know, the Lindbergh kidnapping case and all that. Anyway, so she she had she'd gone through hard times, and uh, her husband actually was a philanderer, so uh, more hard times, but she... Um, wrote a book that really interesting. They had a beach house and she got to know the shells and she talks about 
relationships in terms of these shells. And the first stage is this, uh, I don't remember the, the scientific classifications, but it was this hinged shell, like a clam shell or something, where, you know, it's joined at the hip, so to speak, and it's sort of this symbiotic relationship. And she was talking about that thrill of excitement and, and that it is kind of volatile. You can have the highs, you can have the lows. It's very exciting, romantic you know, all that kind of stuff, because you're not sure if they love you as much as you love them. And, you know, then you find out they're interested and whatever. But she says, then if it, if it turns into any kind of, you know, permanent relationship in marriage, then it becomes stage two. And she had a different shell. Again, I don't remember the name, but it had things attached to it, (laughs) like things, things growing on it, kind of like children, mortgages, you know, repairs, jobs, responsibilities, you know, all those things. And, and she said, it's certainly different. It's, it, this is where, you know, you got to like grow up again and you be responsible. And yes, there are people depending on you and it's not glamorous. And, you know, there's a lot of hard work involved. And she said, some people just can't handle it. All they're attracted to is stage one. And they have the delusion that you can stay in a stage one relationship. But she right. says, inevitably, stage one turns into stage two. So some of these people jump out of stage two and go back to a stage one relationship. You know, they divorce or break up or whatever to find the thrill of stage one. And it's, it's never going to happen because anything that lasts after a while, you know, the thrill diminishes because you become more of known quantity to each other. And, you know, if it, why aren't you moving into a stage two anyway? You, you are somehow or another, whether or not you get married and it's not as, as able to compete with stage one. But why should it? She said the answer really, and I'm paraphrasing terribly because her language is all different, but is to move on to third, the third stage, which is an even increased growth and development and fulfillment comes in more mature ways. And then she had a few other stages, but what I really remember was that first stage and second stage. I read this book decades ago, but it, it was such a good insight. And there is something we even call in research serial marriage. Now, for single people, it's serial breakups. Serial dating you know? breakups, yeah. <laughs> because you go, but you keep trying to find that stage one relationship sometimes. Real, yeah. Real, and it's for any maturing relationship, it has to turn into a stage two, or or be discarded. But then again, we're trying to perpetuate something which cannot stay right. in that state. It has to. It has to morph into something that is stable. So why not look for that in the first place and and stop running that roller coaster of like, ooh, you know, whatever, I don't know, and I'm kind of on the wild side here and trying to find somebody who's just going to ring my bells instead of, like, I want somebody who's steady. And, and at some point, again, you're, you're not in your 20s anymore. If they're not steady, something's wrong. Yeah, that's fair. You know, like, like are, why aren't they, you know, are they good at paying bills? Do they have decent credit rating? Are they, are they attending church consistently? Do they wear modest clothes? Or are they still trying to act like a kid who, who doesn't think it's that important? And that's it's never acceptable to me anyway at any age, but because why should we deny ourselves of good, of blessings that come when we keep our covenants? But nevertheless, certainly as you get older, you'd think you could like snap out of it and say like, okay, I'm ready to sober up. And I don't mean in literal sense, hopefully, but if necessary, I mean that too. And and fly right, you know. Straighten up. Take it seriously. Plant good seeds. What do they say? They say the opposite sometimes in these uh, interviews. Uh, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. You know it's true. Yeah. But why not? Why don't we play smart games and win good prizes? Why don't we play the play better and play smarter? And really, it starts with holding ourselves to high standards. Whatever we have done in the past, this is the answer. It is always the answer. This is where steadiness and happiness and fulfillment and meaning and growth 
This is where it happens. It doesn't happen in that other arena. And find somebody who's taking it seriously enough to do that too. And I think it's hard to find them now because I don't think they really flit around socially very much. So I think you do need to take leads from people and, and investigate in different ways. You know, And I, I'm not saying that's easy, but I know God will bless people who are doing that. Because he does have a personal interest in our development, including marriage. I would actually make this whole thing analogous to a health journey. Like if you're going to try and get healthier, if you're going to try and lose weight, gain muscle, things like that, you have to take comfort in ways that you haven't previously. So for example, if you love eating specific types of foods, if you love sugar, desserts, whatever, and the pleasure that comes with that in the moment, you need to completely turn that on its head by acknowledging the feeling that comes hours after that and how bad you feel about things. And that may even be physical, by the way, like you actually may literally feel sick. And then just about yourself, your body, your progress or lack thereof, and flip it with, you know what, this, this, these vegetables and chicken don't taste great, but my body's going to feel a lot better in a couple hours. And that's what you have to turn, you have to just flip the way you think about the health journey, you have to say, this is this is the pleasure I, I get from this is that I know that I'm doing the right thing and I know that will that that delayed gratification will come a lot better because in two hours three hours I'll I'll feel like I could go run a mile right now if I wanted to or something like and that in a month and two months I'm yeah. gonna look better and feel and better and only better. compounds as things go further yeah, along and it's so true I think that's a really good connection and I think that that it's absolutely that way that people are plus I think that. We could, we should trust God enough to know that our tastes will change. And you know that happens. I mean, if you do give up sugar, fruit, fruit starts to taste amazing. much better. And you're <laughs> like, wow. And then you look at those heavy cakes or cookies and you're like, no, they look good. Now you can go back and you can develop that taste again if you want to and binge out not on that, sugars. Not that diet soda is really good, but... <laughs> It's yeah. it's better than sugared soda, I'm convinced. And sugared soda really does start to just – it's overpowering very quickly once you kind of embrace the like the zero sh- sugar stuff, which – I mean moderation in all things, which isn't necessarily a gospel principle, but it's at least a good life principle. Um, so don't overdo yeah. it with that. But it's along the lines of what you're talking about is that like you will start, start to be grossed out from sugared sodas once you start to abstain from them. Yeah. And I think that that is kind of exercising our faith that God doesn't ask us to do things that are not desirable. So again, we're falling for the delusions and the counterfeits of the world, saying that happiness is here with a hot chick or a hot guy, instead of happiness is with somebody who is steady and stable and lives according to principle in a consistent way. And, and has greater desires than, than just the immediate pleasures that the world has to offer. And, and trusting God enough to know that, like, gosh, you know, maybe that's a leap of faith at first. Because, I, you know, I've enjoyed dabbling around with, you know, well, this, it, this other volatile life. But I'm going to trust that he knows better than I do. And I'm, that my tastes will become tutored and elevated by the journey. And I will look at this and I won't be sitting there going like, well, I'm so sure glad I gave up all the fun in order to you know, live like this because I guess it's worth it, even though that still looks really fun. That's not change. It's like the true change happens when you look back and you go like, why did I take so long? Why didn't I do this before? Because this is greater fulfillment, greater happiness. God is always right. And the sooner I can move in that direction and not trust my own 
appetites, passions, desires, but trust him, that's, that's happiness again. Is there a leap of faith? You bet there is. Because if this were easy, everybody would do it. And if but, they happen to be, and if they happen to be hot, that's just an added bonus. <laughs> you know what? People become more and more beautiful from their stability and goodness. They do, and no, I and no I mean that in a literal that. sense. A literal sense. I mean, we do get so deceived by the world and its version of what beauty is. Instead, there's of, no question about that. Well, yeah. And as we close here, which I've said like three times now. Um, there really is a difference, and this is something you said to me. It was in the context of a very ugly breakup I was going through. And I had noted, I was like, well, I still love her. And you asked one question, and we didn't even expound on it. And I don't even think I ever told you this. But you said, well, did you, though? And I was like, well, I mean, yeah. And you were like, well, what about her did you love? And and. We didn't even really get into it then because there was a lot going on, but I did think about it a lot since then. And it's something that I've thought about in, in my own personal life, which is basically what is the difference between eternal and temporal and what is eternal love and what is temporal love? What is eternal beauty and what is temporal beauty? And you know what? There is somewhat of a Venn diagram there. It's going to overlap just a little bit because there is there are eternal components to temporal things and vice versa. But all in all, there is a difference there. I mean, it's it's a very, it's a minor overlap, but it's there. Now, I don't make that as a point to say like both are just as important, but it is important to delineate between the two that there is a difference between eternal love and eternal beauty and, and temporal love and temporal beauty. I'm, I really appreciate your sharing that because I, I, I mean, love is a sloppy word these days. Yeah, absolutely. But God has a pretty clear definition of it and we should go back to that because people... When we love people, we we respect them, we treat them a certain way, we we guard the way we behave ourselves and how we interact with them, and we and we are looking for the prince the the characteristics that are lovely to God, you know what is that thirteenth article of faith? You know whatever is virtuous, lovely, or good report we or seek. praiseworthy, yeah. we seek these things. And are we doing that, or are we being deceived by Satan with counterfeits? That yes can have a big splash, and yeah, I get what you're saying. There is a little bit of an overlap, but but not like like not that big an overlap in some right. respects. And I mean, like honestly, the only thing that I can even think of is like if they take care of themselves to sure. some degree, like physically, sure. that has eternal ramifications to it, don't you think? You know, you're like there's some... over your health and well being. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. There are factors you can't fully control, and so I think we have. I'm to... not saying they have to be like an Instagram physical fitness model, not nothing along those lines, but I just, right. but, I mean, I understand. And I remember telling your, your brother this um, when he was a freshman and he said, everybody in his human halls dorm was talking about how they were going to go on a mission and come back and marry a hot chick. Do you remember this? <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, is that wrong? <laughs> and I said, I said, and he was pointing out that some of them were like tall and some were fat and some were short and some were, you know, weird. And he said, but they all were going to marry a hot chick in their view. And, and then, he, yeah, you said, is that wrong? And I said, well, okay, let's do an experiment. I said, just for the next couple of weeks, notice how you feel when you interact with hot chicks. And I said, I want you to just categorize women for a minute in three broad categories. And I know this is sloppy. And so, but I said, you know, let's just do this for the experiment's sake. The hot chicks, the good enough looking girls, and, 
And then you can kind of, I don't ask you to spend a lot of time with girls that you think don't take care of themselves. And I think that's what you're saying. You know, people who are present pretty sloppily or they don't wash their hair, or, you know, they're always in sweats. They never dress up, whatever, you know. Again, allowing latitude for emergencies or whatever, but recognizing that there is a stewardship here. And if girls aren't really taking care of themselves at all, there's problems. So anyway, and I said, and see how you feel in those two groups when you're talking with the good enough looking girls and how you feel when you're talking with the hot chicks. And after two weeks, he reported and he said, that was so interesting. He said, it's fun to talk to a hot chick, but it takes a lot of energy. (laughs) He said, they're used to a lot of attention. And they're used to, you know, commanding a lot of, you know, and I'm, this is a broad statement, right? Because you're right. There are some beautiful people who are not into themselves too much. But he was noticing that some of these kids or girls that you would classify that way were, were kind of draining to be around. Well, and you had to more for their attention because there were I, so many people going to offer it. I call it the Kardashians, the, okay. those, the, those that try and look a certain way to get certain type of attention. Yeah. yeah. Well, that would, that would work. And then he said the good enough looking girls, he said, honestly, it's more comfortable to be around them. It's, you know, it's not as draining, but it's Still fun. I mean, they're, they're nice. They're nice. And it's just a little easier. And, um, and he's, then he said, will you remind me of this after my mission? <laughs> and I said, yeah, count on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there was a guy in one of my classes once at the Y when we were talking about a subject like this, who's, and he said, yeah, to me, it's like cars. He said, I, I really, really wanted to buy some fancy, expensive cars when I was a kid. And I thought, you know, I could do that. And I read all these car magazines and I was choosing which model I'd want and whatever and how much it would take to save that up. And he said, I thought, you know, if I work really hard and save my money, he said, I could do it someday. I could do it. But then I read this article that talked about how much it costs for an oil change. Yeah. <laughs> Or how much it costs for, you know, this job or this replace or whatever. And I'm like, gosh, I guess I could get the model, but could I ever afford the maintenance? And he says, somehow this light bulb went off my head and said, it's the same as girls. You know, I, I could maybe marry that hot chick, but could I afford the maintenance? Mm. <laughs> and he didn't mean financial. Yeah, that That's could be hilarious. part of it. Too. Well, it was pretty funny. So, I mean, I think that, again, it's like, why don't we trust God's version of beauty? Because I, I did a, s- a scripture search once on the word beauty. And God's definition is strength, nobility, virtue, goodness, righteousness. Why don't we trust that? That's beauty. And that beauty gets better and better through time and eternity. Well, that seems like a great place to close it out. Mom, I really appreciate the time coming on the podcast. I did not expect it to be almost two hours, only I shouldn't be that surprised. Um <laughs> We we can talk. I know that. It's That's for fun. sure. And I hope it was just as enjoyable for people to listen yep. as it was for me to participate. Um, as we close, I did want to ask, uh, you do Choosing Glory like a couple times a week or at least once a week. I know you're releasing an episode. It's once a week. It usually comes out Monday evenings. Yeah, I that's what the kind of beginning of the week. Choosing Glory podcast, which you basically highlight, come follow me and what's being talked about that week. But you like to deviate and kind of talk about things that you're familiar with and how it applies to that week's. Well, I do. I love the scriptures. So I, I like to start there, but I really am trying to go more and more into application, which is my real love, like how the gospel applies to our lives and our relationships. So yes, I, I do. That's what I love. And I, I am, I do get off a little bit sometimes on those, on those uh, directions, which I, which I hope people will enjoy. Right. a lot of podcast feedback. So, yeah, so, come and try it out if you're interested. That's right. Choosing Glory Podcast. All right, check that out. And uh, with that, we'll go ahead and sign off. Thanks a lot, Mom. Love you. Love you, too. Bye-bye.
Once again, thank you to my mom for taking the time. She is one of the busiest people I know. Coming on my podcast, talking through some topics, having a little bit of fun with back and forth of why I'm not married. Um, I was the one that was really pushing for that. She doesn't, I mean, she she really is not on my case about it. So I don't, I did, certainly didn't want it to come across that way, but I thought it'd be more fun. Plus, I also thought it would be fairly informative, as it was. Um, but really quickly, before I sign off here, uh, I just wanted to remind you all that the the next Follow Him episode that she will be on is the week of October 31st to November 6th. So I believe it'll be right before October 31st when they'll release the episode. And you can always catch her Choosing Glory podcast on a weekly basis that she does as well. Um, and then going off of that, just closing out here, I did want to share just kind of some thoughts, things that I had shared in my talk uh, last Sunday, which I know I just spoke like last May, like it was two months ago, I think. And um, I had a lot of awesome opportunities to speak in the ward that I was, that I'm leaving. And that's why I spoke again, because I'm uh, moving in a couple of weeks and moving into the townhome that I've been talking about down in American Fork. And my bishop, who I have a great relationship with, wanted uh, me to speak one last time specifically on coming back to the temple and kind of the journey that that was for me because it, you know, I had to take some time, like really getting my act together again after having that hiatus, so to speak. And I specifically shared three ideas um, on coming back to the temple, which, you know, we, the idea being that we often talk about persevering to the end, but we don't necessarily know exactly what that may entail. We don't necessarily dive into the details, I guess, or at least not everybody does. And that's what I wanted to share because I believe that persevering to the end is the hardest part, right? It's the part that takes the longest. And so what I hit on, the thoughts that came to my mind, now granted, these aren't the only things that will help persevering to the end, but I believe this will, and it certainly helped me, which is why I wanted to share it, is that daily scripture study and prayer. That's one. The second one may be a little bit unique, but I truly believe there is a lot of power in that, and that's fasting. And then the third one being utilizing the power of the atonement, which is a lot of what like President Nelson talked about in his spiritual momentum uh, talk last general conference in last April. And he talks about daily repentance. And that's essentially what utilizing the power of the atonement is in this context, at least. And really letting the Savior take over in your life and reminding you of things that you can improve upon, which is constant, right? And it can feel overwhelming at times. But regular study and prayer, scripture study and prayer, is, is you know, I, I highly doubt you find people that at least, you know, participate in grievous sins one day, read their scriptures and said a prayer that morning. It's definitely possible. There are outliers, but I don't think it's very common. The point being is that regular scripture study and regular prayer keep you tethered in a way that gives you strength on a daily basis to avoid even the lighter sins that can lead you down a path of destruction. Fasting, even more so, gives you amazing power. It unlocks the powers of heaven. I truly believe that. It gives you closer to Christ. It gives you more insight into his nature, how he feels about you. And you can fast about specific things that can give you strength for what you're looking for. And I mean anything. I mean anything. And I promise you that power is real. And then, of course, the atonement is one of the most powerful things that we can access uh, in, in our lives. And it's only meant to help us. And as long as we take advantage of it, you know, obviously not only will we not be led astray, but we will be given certain strengths that we need uh, in this life. 
to combat the hardships that we face on a daily basis. Anyway, just wanted to share that with you all. Uh, Thank you all for listening. Thank you for chiming in. Once again, if you could take a second, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, leave a rating, all that stuff. That only helps. I always appreciate that. Love you all. Thanks for the great feedback. You guys have been great, and we'll catch you next week. Old love, I remember falling so madly. There must have been magic in the valley and a rhythm in the night. Cause I could almost see it. Did you fade right out of you? If it takes time, I, I, if it takes time.